us bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege, Father, of just being here together as family. May we never become familiar with it, but really and truthfully recognize it for what it is. It's a grace gift, Father, motivated by your love. Father, we're so grateful for all that you've done for us as individuals, but also as you sanctified this congregation, Father, over time. What a blessing it's been. What a gift. Father, we do pray for those in the congregation that can't be with us here this evening for one reason or another. Your will be done, of course. We pray also for those that are still lost in this world, Father, without hope, that before it's too late, they be humbled, repent, and receive saving faith, Father. We are most grateful and thankful, of course, for your son's work to cancel out that debt that was against us, Father, and to just make an evening like this such a wonderful reality to rejoice in. We do just ask for your blessings on this evening's message. May it be edifying for our souls. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Again, part 33 of Proverbs 17, Wisdom. I read a nice letter to you on Sunday with a reference to the following passage. Go to John 6.35. Good way to start off this evening. Um, Nice letter uh, we received, or I received, from a member of the congregation um, that I think we all need to, you know, draw encouragement from. John 6.35, just a nice reminder to kick things off. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me. How comforting. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Again, how comforting. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. How's that for encouragement? It's beautiful. Does it ever get old? I don't think so. I'll give you some more encouragement. Last night around 3 a.m., The good Lord, as he often does, woke me up for a little conversation. So funny, because I roll over, I'm like, do we have to? I mean, it's 3 o'clock, right? I'm tired. But, you know, 3 a.m. So I prayed and asked him for additional guidance on why he woke me up. If there was any scripture he wanted me to uh, read, And believe it or not, he said Psalm 32. No idea why at the time, but it was clear, Psalm 32. (laughs) And I said, do I have to read it now? And he said, no. (laughs) Yes. (laughs) He said, no, and he gave me an extra hour and a half. So I I read it when I got up to prepare this message, which was at 4.30 in the morning. So I was up at 4.30 in the morning uh, preparing this message. Um, And he had a lot to say to me, personally, based on some things that uh, I've had to deal with this past week. Um, But I do want to read it together in a moment. And 
you can see if it resonates in your own soul somehow. And just as some background, uh, the psalm was written by King David. Some th theologians call this one of the, um, I want to say there's seven of them in Holy Scripture, one of the penitential psalms. In other words, there's confession, there's penitence involved in the psalm because it deals with confession of sin. And in this case, God's forgiveness as well. Remember what we noted on Sunday up here on the board. Psalm 51, verse 17. Psalm 51, 17. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit and a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. That's God's way of saying, listen, I want you. I want your heart. I want you. I want all of you. I want you to confess to me uh, what you know about yourself, including your own sinfulness. That's where I want you to be because I can work with that. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And from Sunday, you probably remember the thrust of Psalm 51 was this very concept of contrition, uh, repentance, and confession. But not for the sake, not confession for the sake, you know, false religions might lie to you about. Not that kind of confession. Rather, the value of confessing what is true to God, our Father in heaven, whether it's good or bad, what's the value in confession itself. That's why he had us read that passage. And remember, confession by definition, all it really means is to say the same thing as God. And it's not always bad. That's a religious construct where confession is always confessing sin. I always am confessing sin. It's always bad. There's always some, you know, whipping that comes with it. No. Confession simply means, by definition, to say the same thing as God. It could be good or bad. So don't cut out half the value of confession and don't give it a, you know, a poor or a negative uh, you know, stigma, if you would, just because you grew up in a religion or something that taught you that confession was always confession of sin, maybe to some dude in a booth with a weird-looking collar, um, all that kind of stuff. Don't do that to yourself. Don't be religious about confession. Confession goes in both directions, okay? Just means to say the same thing, to agree with them. So this has particular significance, though, nonetheless, in the area of sinning. Uh, and the disclaimer is that, you know, I'm not saying that God had me read a penitential psalm, you know, because I needed to confess my own sin. So don't say, oh, what'd you do? <laughs> right? Although he did call me to the carpet to examine myself, which always turns up some kind of errant thinking. Uh, if you're humble, you know whenever you read the Word of God, you see how pure it is. And on, with that in your face, you say, oh, I'm pretty impure. And he always reveals something. In this case, I believe he was encouraging me. Um, and long story short, through my own encouragement, he wanted me to encourage all of you to take this chapter in Holy Scripture to heart. And so with all that said, let's read the chapter. Go to Psalm 32, verse 1. Psalm 32, verse 1. And you'll see two parts to it, uh, verses 1 to 5, and then 6 and on. So Psalm 32, verse 1, reads, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit 
there is no deceit. For when I kept silent, this is David, remember, remember his sins with Bathsheba and Uriah. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, David is describing the destructive force of refusing to confess one sin to God. He said, when I kept silent, in other words, when I refused to confess, my bones wasted away. And think about that punishment. We'll get there this evening. Proverbs 17.5, right? That punishment. Where does it come from? And how is it enacted in our souls? How does it press heavily on us? Well, David's describing it in pretty great detail here. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away. Ow. Through my groaning all day long. He couldn't rest. He couldn't find any peace. Unconfessed sin. Verse 4. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, Salah. I acknowledged my sin to you. So he turns now. I acknowledged my sin to you. In other words, I confessed it. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. In other words, like a before and after picture. Before confession, after confession. God can deal with humility, you see. So David shares his wisdom with us as a grace gift in this passage. He is essentially saying that to confess with your heart will always lead to forgiveness from him. To confess leads to forgiveness, but it's got to be from the heart. And I'm not talking about that weird thing that people do, oh, you know, from the heart. You know what I'm saying. The way the Bible describes the heart. So he's essentially saying that confess is what leads to forgiveness. And therefore, deliverance from the throes of spiritual death for you. That's the beauty of confession. It leads to forgiveness. And then you're released, you're delivered from the throes of being disoriented from God. And we call that spiritual death. Separation from God, by definition, is spiritual death. And so you're delivered from the throes of that. Now, if we think about it, to live in sin that way, we just saw David's example. It's a choice, remember. If you're living in sin right now, just remember it's a choice. To refuse to confess that sin is essentially to remain in it, to waste away in it to be haunted by it, to have your good conscience press you low as a result. As the Spirit's been teaching us uh, through our study of Proverbs 17.5, as of late, our good conscience will never allow us to settle in such an estate. Our good conscience is never going to find peace. It's never going to allow us peace. Let's put it that way. In fact, the Word of God and the Spirit have made it very clear that we will be, quote, punished by our own good conscience whenever we persist to live in sin. And that's what we saw with David. His own conscience was crushing him. His bones were wasting away. He could not find peace. Again, the Spirit has described this Punishment as visceral. Remember the nerve endings, right? Cateriazzo, the, the nerve endings. Uh, it's visceral for those that still have those nerve endings. Something inescapable and a robber of peace. That's our punishment. We cannot find peace when we live in sin. Again, David recounts his own deliverance from the throes of living in sin. Verse 5, he says, I acknowledged my sin 
to you. In other words, he confessed, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin, Salah. And then David, as I mentioned earlier, in verse 6, he becomes our teacher. He says, look, I've been through it, okay? This is what happens. Unconfessed sin, it almost destroyed me. I confessed it. I was delivered. He forgave me. I moved on. I was able to be delivered from that situation, from my own doing. Remember, it's a choice. From my own doing. Verse 6, Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the rush of great waters they shall not reach him. Him here is the one praying. He's protected, in other words. Verse 7, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Salah. And then he speaks on behalf of wisdom. I, wisdom, in other words, will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. And this is where it gets interesting. Be not like a horse or a mule without understanding, which must be curbed with bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. David's saying something uh, very practical here that we all need to listen to. He's saying, don't be a stubborn mule, <laughs> right? Don't be like that up here on the board. The value of confession. A stubborn person who refuses good counsel is only harming themselves. That's what he's saying. He's like, to all of you who are godly, don't be like I was. Don't waste your time. Don't live in this unconfessed sin. Confess it before the good Lord. Let him deliver you. Receive your forgiveness. Let him deliver you. A stubborn person who refuses good counsel is only harming themselves. That is the value of confession. Think about it. If not yourself, which is... Let me finish. You'll see what I mean. If not yourself, have you ever met anyone who just caught blanc, refuses to receive wisdom and humility? In other words, it's their way or the highway. They never adjust. They never take um, criticism. They never do. They never receive anything in humility. You ever met anyone like that? That just, I mean, cop blanc refuses to receive wisdom in humility. There's an old saying that applies here, up here on the board. Arrogance is unteachable. Arrogance is unteachable. Now, think about all the, of the emphasis uh, from this pulpit over the years regarding the necessity of the Word of God as the basis of our learning. It's how we're taught, in other words. Now think about a person who refuses to abide by the doctrines found in the Word, as in, of primary importance, take in the Word even. This rejection of truth takes away any opportunity to actually learn from it, rendering that person unteachable. If you refuse the thing that can teach you, the truth, the word of truth, the wisdom from the word of truth, well, you're de facto unteachable because that's the one instrument that God uses to teach us. Again, up here on the board, arrogance is unteachable. And this is why David closes with verse 10. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. But steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. So, speaking of learning and trusting in the Lord, 
because that's what we just read. This week's blog is titled, up here on the board, God Teaches Us Trust. God teaches us trust. And I hope you appreciate that blog. I know I sure did writing it. Um, all I can say is that it was given in perfect timing and that God is good. God teaches us trust. So make sure you read that blog this week. So that's the chapter in Holy Scripture that the Spirit uh, at 3 a.m. this morning <laughs> earmarked for our encouragement. And I know personally I needed to hear it and pray on it. And I also know that God wanted you all to read it as well. God only knows the reason why for each of you as individuals. Maybe it's for the simple fact that I'm not the only sinner in this room. Right? I mean, maybe that's why. Duh. All right, let's go back to our primary course of study. Proverbs 17.5. I've already alluded to it once or twice. Proverbs 17.5. Good lead into... Our passage. <clears throat> Have you noticed we've spent a lot of time on this verse? This one in verse, I remember verse 1, the one that had to do with money. Funny, isn't it? Because this one kind of has to do with money too. It's funny. Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker. He who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. On Sunday we took a closer look at the opposite pole of the continuum we might call spirituality. Remember, on that continuum of spirituality, there are basically polar ends, right? We have two different vectors. One points towards advanced unbelief and one points towards advanced belief. And we're all on that continuum somewhere. So he gave us one end of it to look at, the opposite end of where we're headed. And so we looked at the end result of the vector of the unbeliever who persists in their arrogance against God. In other words, their refusal to confess they are sinners in need of a Savior. That's their fundamental problem, after all. They refuse to confess that one very critical thing, that they're sinners in need of a Savior. And what we noted was indicative of what Paul described in the second half of Romans 1, which ended like this up here on the board, Romans 132. I'll give you the amplified classic this time. Though they are fully aware of God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them themselves, but approve and applaud others who practice them. That's that in fact that's the that's where the the advanced unbelief is. They they not only just do things they know are against God, they do it heartily and they applaud one another. That's beyond just unbelief. That's unbelief plus antagonism or antagonistic behavior towards their creator. So the the end result of an unbeliever's arrogance is that they become frankly abominations in the sight of God. There's so much abominations that he just, remember, he just hands them over. Remember, we looked at even the original Greek on that. He just personally says, I've dealt with you one-on-one. -on -one. Done. Go. Let it run out. I'm going to count you now as a proverb, as a living, walking proverb that I can teach my own children about or, or future children about. You're going to be recorded even in Holy Scripture as a proverb of what happens to those who betray me, their creator. And so he has a purpose for them. That's like Romans 9, the potter and the clay, right? Because he chooses some for dishonorable use. So they become abominations in the sight of God. They not only disobey his command to receive the gospel in humility, repent and be saved, they become antagonistic to him altogether. And that's the picture of the advanced unbeliever 
which is something Paul wrote about to the church of Ephesus as well. Go to Ephesians 4.17. Ephesians 4.17. So Paul wrote about this as well here in uh, Ephesians 4.17. Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. That's how we ended up in that passage a couple of lessons back. But on Sunday... We took pause on verse 19. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That first word was pleonexia up here on the board in the Greek, greedy, translated greedy here in the English Standard Version, means the desire for more things. An example, lusting for a greater number of temporal things that go beyond what God determines is eternally best, beyond his preferred will. And the usage, covetousness, avarice, aggression, and a desire for advantage. That's Strong's. The second word in the phrase, greedy to practice, was up here on the board, ergasia, to practice. You can see the root word for ergo in there, which is work. Refers to working, activity, Work, service, trade, business, gains of business, performance, and practice. Greedy to practice. Think about that. Greedy to practice this thing, every kind of impurity. With a certain avarice, a desire to take advantage and work hard at it. What? We'll look at it again. Verse 19. They've become callous and have, be, uh, have given themselves up to sensuality. Greedy to practice. Take the full force of what we just saw in the original language and apply it there. Greedy. It's almost gross, right? The greedy to practice every kind of impurity. That's the picture of that person with a hardened heart, the advanced unbeliever. So this becomes our backdrop, and it's quite a backdrop. Um, for, that gives us a godly perspective um, and a lot of depth to the conversation. It says, wow, that's, that's what it's like over there on the other end. I know we're going in this direction. We're imperfect. We're, 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 we're um, cutting a, a crooked furrow. Is that what it's called, a furrow in, the, in, the, in farmer's terms? A furrow, right? We're all over the map, right? We're cutting a crooked. We don't do it well necessarily. As we sanctify, get that dampening uh-huh, dampening side wind, nobody, right? It just kind of gets better. But we look back and we say, wow, that's a big difference, what he's doing with me compared to what he's letting them do when he hands them over. Huge, massive difference, a chasm between us. So that becomes our backdrop. In other words, with a solid picture of the advanced unbeliever in our minds, we're able to understand the value of being saved. The value of being saved. Just imagine right now, if you weren't saved. Worse than that, if, if not only you weren't saved, but you were in that bucket of people, advanced unbelievers. What is their life like? What do they have for hope? How do they cope with this world? I don't know. I mean, I do, but, you know, I'm glad it's not me. It makes me all the more grateful for all that he did for me on that cross. Amen? Yeah, that's the point. He gives us that to reflect on. And it gives the whole thing scale. So understanding darkness that way gives light magnitude, if that makes sense. And that's the value of learning about the opposite pole from belief in Christ. That end for them is really destitution and depravity. And it is characterized wholly 
by arrogance. It's a choice. They're without excuse, according to Romans 1. That's what arrogance does. Arrogance is unteachable. Um, as we began this evening, this arrogance is the source of an unbeliever's rejection of truth and their unwillingness to confess themselves as sinners before the holy, sovereign God of the universe. And this is the wisdom we just received from David in Psalm 32, right? Up here on the board. Psalm 32.10 read, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. That direction? Spiritual depravity. Spiritual death. The throes of death. That's the end goal. That's sorrow. The whole kit and kaboom. Anything, that, anything that's good that belongs to God is absent here. That's why the lake of fire is so awful. Because it's essentially everything good is in heaven <laughs> with God. And everything that's left over is on this side. And that's where the vectors are heading. So when Paul continues in this passage, he uses this newfound, let's call it depth of perspective. Let's call it, we understand magnitude now, this magnitude, and he draws upon it for encouragement's sake. Look at verse 20. He says, but that is not the way you learned Christ. See the exclamation point? That's not the way you learned Christ. Assuming that you have heard about him, and we're taught in him as the truth is in Jesus, in other words, assuming you're a believer, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life, and it's corrupt, and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. You were not created for that. You weren't born again to be dragged down in that direction. Your true north is set. You go this way. You are looking forward to the things in front of you. You keep your mind on the things above. Reaching forward. Alright, go to Proverbs 17.5. So there we have it, uh, that sort of depth of perspective, if you want to call it, this, this magnitude that exists between believers and unbelievers, even in their advanced stages. And then we come back to this thing, the, the thing that precipitated it all, this ugly situation in verse 5, this thing that just is an illustration or is indicative of awfulness. Um, whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So as we learned on Sunday, believers don't just agree with this verse. They are deeply affected by the content of it. It's one of the ways that you know you're a believer. Um, and maybe, you're the, maybe once in a while you become that person but if you become that person and you live in that type of thinking, you will be haunted as a believer until you, you are corrected, especially if you know better, especially if you have Holy Scripture resident in you that the Holy Spirit can use to convict you, to tell you over and over again, that's not love. That, that does not look like Jesus Christ at all. That's not how you learned Christ. Didn't we just see that with Paul in Ephesus? That's not you in Christ, that, because that's not Christ. That's the antithesis. That's antichrist thinking. To have that mentality. So we don't just agree with the verse. We are deeply affected by the content of it. And if in any way said believer is guilty of this type of sin... Again, they'll be haunted by their own good conscience until they confess it. 
I'd be willing to bet, it's none of my business, but I'd be willing to bet someone, if not more than one person in here, has had to confess this since we started looking at it. Yeah, that was me. Oh, that's still me. I still get this sort of like, I don't know, this pretentious air about me that I don't even like about myself, but it's still there because I have a flesh and it's weak and it just wants to be better. So any chance it gets, it, you know, it mocks that poor person. At least I'm not as bad as that person. Anybody want to raise their hand and say they've never done that? What's the matter? It all applies, doesn't it? Can't just point fingers at advanced unbelievers. Oh, they're so wretched. Oh, they're so wretched. We all do it. And that's the point of these messages. So, if you're a believer, what the Spirit's telling you, what you've probably already experienced, is that you'll be haunted. Your good conscience is not going to let you get away with that for very long. Especially not when you sit in front of a pulpit like this one. Again, if that believer is guilty of that sin, they will be haunted until they confess it. Otherwise, they will find themselves in a condition like David was when he was living in unconfessed, unrepented sin. Up here on the board, Psalm 32, 3-4. Remember this? But when I kept silent, David's like, I'm not ready. You ever done that? I'm not... <laughs> I'm not ready yet. I'm kind of liking this sin I'm sitting in right now. I'm not ready to confess it yet. And slowly you are basically rotting away from the inside out. (laughs) Your peace is just rotting. Right? It's, It's like one of those little apples you leave out too long. But when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. Salah. The solution to this kind of, quote, punishment, if we're going to use Proverbs 17.5 language, the solution is confession. You can't change it. You've already done it. So you don't live in condemnation. You don't get depressed about the fact that you're a sinner. Everybody knows Especially God. Especially Jesus when he died on the cross for that sin. Right? You've already sinned. You don't live in condemnation. You just confess it. Say, I agree with you, Lord. He can work with that. If you don't confess it, if you look back and say, eh, I'm not ready. As a matter of fact, I think I'm just going to perpetuate living in this sin. You will suffer. You will be punished especially as a believer. To whom much is given, what? There you go. There you go. You will be punished. And that's a good thing, because it reorients you to God, which is where all the blessings are. So this is what we noted in Psalm 51. Go to 51.1. Psalm 51, verse 1. I'll read this quickly with you. It's point of review. It's David again. This great sin with Bathsheba and Uriah. Remember, David was a murderer. That's pretty foul. Murdered someone's husband so he could have the lady. That's pretty foul. Psalm 51, verse 1. He says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions, Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. That's what confession looks like. That's what a contrite heart looks like. Do you see? That's what humility looks like. That's what repentance looks like. He says, I know my transgressions. I confess them to you. My sin is ever before me. Against you, you only... Have I sinned? Remember, we looked at the magnitude. It was that blaring light. It's so offensive to God that he didn't see anything else, even though he recognized he sinned against all involved. 
Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God. O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. And this is where we come back. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. This brings us back to the start of this very message, which really is the key principle being taught here this evening. So I want you to concentrate. There's a huge chasm between those polar endpoints of the two spiritual vectors the Spirit's been using as visual aids lately. This way to the end, and that way to the end. Huge chasm. On one end is the picture of the advanced unbeliever. On the other is the picture of the advanced believer. The difference between the two, the very cause for the division, is one simple thing. Sin. Sin. That's the difference. And the way a person can cross this chasm from one end to the other, from darkness to light, is confession. To agree with God about your own sin. So the very first and most important confession of all is your confession of faith in Christ as Lord and Savior, which begins with acknowledgement or acknowledging that you need him. That's the great confession when you're presented with the gospel. You're right, Lord. I do need you. That's the great big first confession for all of us that are believers in Christ. You're right. I am a sinner. And you're right. I do need a Savior. That's what confession looks like. Again, look at the last verse in this passage. He says, verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. In other words, stop being religious. Stop going to church thinking you're going to get to heaven because you go to church. Stop rubbing your rosaries and saying 22 prayers back to back because you think that's going to be pleasing to God. Stop sacrificing yourself in your own arrogance. You're better off not even doing that thing. In other words, (laughs) don't spend an hour walking old ladies across the street if the whole time you're like, this sucks. Right? But God likes it, so maybe I get some creature credit or some chits on my way to heaven. As if that's how he worked. You might as well not even do it. He doesn't want those kinds of sacrifices. He wants your heart. He wants a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. So save your sacrifices for your religious friends. But I don't want them. Does that make sense? Yeah. Confession is the one thing we can do in humility that is pleasing to God in such a way that he forgives us. 
There is no other way to be forgiven by God. You have to confess. You have to. That's the whole point of confession. There's no other way. This is why an unbeliever is ultimately sentenced to the lake of fire for all of eternity. It's not because they sinned, because that's a foregone conclusion. It's not because they sinned, it's because they refused to confess it to God. That's the point. Everybody's a sinner. We are born sinners. The difference between that end goal and that end goal is confession. I confess, I'm a sinner and I need a savior. That's called salvation. And then even after you're saved, sanctification, experientially speaking, depends on even confession. So you're not rotting away. So you're not at a loss of peace. Because the end of that vector is perfect peace. That's why we call it ultimate sanctification. We don't ever get there in time. We get there in heaven. Perfect peace. Beautiful. That's the end goal. That's the vector. But we have to confess to mature in that vector, to gain momentum in that vector. Every creature that ends up in hell may rightly be categorized as unrepentant. It's that simple. Read the red letters. It's all Jesus ever said. Repent. It's the first thing out of his mouth. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Otherwise, you're going to be cast off to where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And you know what? You'll be rightly there because you're arrogant. So repent. Confess. It's that simple. Salvation is about one thing. The issue. The core issue is sin. I mean... To say you need salvation, if there wasn't a problem, what would you be saved from? So the core issue is always about sin. That's why I fought tooth and nail for probably, what, 18 months? Maybe 36 even? Against all these watered-down gospels out there that never talk about sin. The actual offensiveness of sin to the Holy Creator, the Sovereign of the universe. No, 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 we just say, hey, say this little prayer right here. Um, say you believe in Jesus Christ and you get a free ticket to heaven. Who the heck's not going to say that? Of course, we just lied to them. Didn't tell them the truth. God forbid you be anti-politically correct and offend somebody when Jesus Christ is called the stumbling block. The whole idea is to be offensive. (laughs) Right? If you're not offensive... To someone's human flesh, what are you? What kind of gospel is that? If that thing that you present has nothing to do with sin, if it's not offensive, a person's flesh doesn't go, you didn't do your job. That's the whole point. That's the whole point. The issue with salvation is always sin. So that's the very first thing we must confess. God has provided a way for every human to be reconciled to himself, to borrow from Scott's communion service message on Sunday. He's found a way for every human to be reconciled to himself. By grace, God has made a way for us. Up here on the board, Jesus said it this way, John 14, 6, said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There's only one way. And that we have to confess. That's the whole point. We have to confess it. He is the only one. That's why a person who does not confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and Savior, cannot be saved. That's the whole point. We have to confess the truth. We have to say the same thing to the God of all truth. Yes, Lord, I am a sinner. Yes, Lord, you are perfect. Yes, Lord, you found a way. Yes, Lord, you sent your Son to die for my sins, to take that thing away. 
Yes, Lord, you found a way for me to be reconciled to you. Thank you. I need you. That's the mind of Christ. There's no other way. There it is. There's no other way. Anyone who does not confess Jesus cannot be saved. That's what the Bible says. Until you can prove to me otherwise, I'm going to keep teaching that. Because that's what the Holy Bible says. And that's the mind of Christ. As we've learned recently, this is the mind that has existed for all of eternity. And it is evidenced throughout the Holy Bible, whether it's Old Testament or New Testament, it doesn't matter. So we can confidently say that this is the same mind that is evidenced in David's writing. In both Psalm 32 and Psalm 51, we read both of them this evening. Same mind. Just say the same thing. I just want you to say what is true. I can work with that. I call that humility. If you refuse that, or if you reject that notion, uh, you're arrogant. And arrogance is unteachable. Because of David's alignment with the mind of Christ, he has described a certain way in the Bible. It's really tremendous. Go to Acts 13.22. <clears throat> Acts 13.22. It's incredible the way that the Word of God describes David. Acts 13.22. <clears throat> And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king. Same David, right? Psalm 32, Psalm 51, same guy. Whom he testified and said, I have found David and the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. A man after my heart. Seriously? Up here on the board. David owns this designation because he was humble and repentant knowing his sins were preeminently against the holy, sovereign, righteous God of the universe. His life was a confession, a testimony, a witness. That's why he's called a man after his heart, because he was oriented to God. Did he mess up? Yes. Yes. But what did he call on? He called on the mercy and the grace of God, the love of God. The same thing we call on. Even today, when we confess our sins, when we're seeking forgiveness and deliverance and sanctification. And what did Jesus pray for? I think it's uh, John 17, 17. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. That's why we're here this evening, right? We're learning this so we know, what does it mean to confess? Because I was taught religiously that it was just this thing I did in a booth. You need to learn the truth from the Word of God. David knew it, and David oriented to it. That's the point. So David was occupied with God's thoughts, not man's. So let's keep all of this in mind as we venture back to our primary passage. And I've got to get ready to close. Go to Proverbs 17.5 again. Proverbs 17.5. <clears throat> Whoever mocks the poor insults his maker, he who is glad at calamity will not go unpunished. So here's the capstone principles we've learned from this verse up here on the board. First, a believer's good conscience will not allow them to rejoice in sin. You will be punished. Because now you have the faculties and the wherewithal and the truth to convict you. And then second, up here on the board, the value of truth. The word of truth is a double-edged sword, Hebrews 4.12. If you're oriented to God, you are blessed with peace. If not, you are cursed with unrest. And this cursing is what we read in context as punishment. If you're disoriented, if you refuse or reject confession, you're punished. That's the curse. It is the natural estate of the advanced unbeliever. In fact, they are under a curse 
but they're too arrogant to acknowledge it. So this cursing, this punishment, um, that's the natural state of the advanced, of the unbeliever, of the advanced unbeliever especially. But they're too darn arrogant to even acknowledge it. They won't confess it. They won't cross the chasm. You understand? They won't accept that they're a sinner. They won't confess that to a God who they reject. And so there's no salvation for them. That's the point. They don't want what Jesus did on the cross for them. They hear the gospel and they go, I'm a pretty good guy. I'm a pretty good gal. I don't, what do I need a savior for? Remember, what's the key issue with salvation? Sin. Well, what if you think you're a swell guy? How much do you think you need a savior? Eh, maybe I do, maybe I don't. I don't know, I'm a pretty good guy. I, I don't think I need him. You see what they did? They took the issue, the crux, the pivotal point of the gospel itself, and threw it out the window on the basis that God's not sovereign enough to judge them. Who is he to say I'm a sinner? I think I'm a pretty swell guy. Who's he to tell me I was born in sin? That sounds pretty heinous. All that stuff that unbelievers reason with, all that arrogance that people posture themselves on against the holy, their, their holy creator. Remember, every knee shall bow. So nobody's getting away with anything. We believers, on the other hand, are actually what we would call predisposed as new creatures to seeking the truth. Unbelievers reject it. We seek it. We're, we're built to seek the truth. It's why you're here this evening. You're seeking the truth. You're predisposed to it. You have a, you have a thirst for it, a hunger for it that was placed in you at salvation. Jesus himself said all of these things. I'm just going to walk slowly through these, and then we'll close. First, Matthew 6.33, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Why does that resonate with us? Because, it's, because we're believers. We say, yeah, that makes total sense. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and I don't have to worry about all the details of life. My anxiety goes, poof, because I hand it over to God. When I'm arrogant and I think I can do it on my own, all of a sudden, my anxiety starts sinking in. My concerns, the details of life start pressing me low. Why? Because I've essentially taken taken responsibility for all the details, something God says he'll take care of for us, on my own shoulders. And when I do that, I'm pressed low. He says, change your thinking. I'm going to retool you now. Now that you're mine, I'm going to retool you with this book. I'm going to teach you. Remember, humility is teachable, arrogance unteachable. Stay humble and I can teach you things that set you free because that's what the truth does. That's what's in here, the truth. Seek that truth. I'll add everything else up to you. Matter of fact, when you get, to, when you get, down, when you get down the road a little ways, you're not even going to care about stuff as piddly as money or finances or what you're going to wear tomorrow. Those things are going to be almost like a joke to you. you you're going to be so in love and infatuated with me, you could care less. You're just glad to be in Christ Jesus. All you can think about is the fact that you're saved. Hmm. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. We must ask, we must seek in persistent humility up here on the board. Matthew 7, 7, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Remember, I, I gave you the original language maybe six, eight months ago. Probably, it's probably like two years ago. Tammy always makes fun of me. I have no sense of time. It was probably last night at three in the morning. Right? It couldn't have been because you weren't with me. So, right? All those verbs, seeking, finding, uh, knocking, right? They include the idea of persistence. Do you, some of you remember that? When I gave you the original language, it was persistently seek. 
Persistently knock. That was the whole idea. So in persistent humility, we do that thing. Above all else, we seek the truth. For as Jesus said, it is the word of truth that sanctifies us. I actually alluded to this earlier. John 17, 17. Sanctify them in what? The truth. Well, what's the truth? Your word is truth. That's why you're here. You take this in so that you can be equipped to be sanctified. And then finally, the blessing for the believer is simple. According to Jesus, John 8.32, and you will know the truth, and guess what? The truth will set you free. Amen? All right, let's bow our heads. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for this incredible privilege of studying your word here this evening. We just ask for your blessings as we take the things we've learned back to the privacy of our own souls, to our families, to our homes, Father. And you will be done out to those who need the truth more than ever, Father. We ask this in Jesus Christ's precious name. By the power of the Spirit, we do pray. Amen. Thank you.